are doing a chamber chat with um, David Farmer. It's totally unrehearsed. Totally unrehearsed. It's it's raw. Uh, and how long ago? Uh, you're like a new friend. Six it's, months. Six months. Okay. Mm -hmm. And <clears throat> anyway, uh, when I ran across him, literally, and found, it's like, oh my gosh, uh, he, everybody needs to know this guy. And so I thought today what we could do is kind of uh, learn about his background because I just kind of learned it by prying little things out of him because he doesn't really talk about himself. So uh, I'm going to make him tell us everything today. So we're going to do this for the first 30 minutes on Facebook Live and then uh, we'll shut that down and then open it up. We do have um, an audience today and so then they'll be able to ask questions. Awesome. Yes. So the first thing first, I want to start with today you are where and doing what and then i'm going to go back in time so tell us that today i'm in dallas stop yes <laughs> go ahead i'm in dallas i have a company called ad giants um i started it 20 years ago and uh, my lead investor was a gentleman named tegan pickens and we office together during that time and i'll tell you later about the evolution of that company. The company I built with him was not the company that Ad Giants is today, uh, but there's a really good story behind that. <laughs> yeah. Teaser. Okay, so I want to start kind of back in the in the beginning. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I, I guess first of all, did you know growing up that this advertising gig no. was the thing? No. Okay. No. So how did you start out? I watched The Witch. Uh, Darren Stevens is pretty cool. But it was always the wife that came up with all the good ideas. You yes. remember Larry Tate would come over and they'd get drunk and she would tell them the great idea for a campaign. Or as they call it back then, a slogan. You know, <laughs> ad slogans. Um, if you've ever watched Mad Men, um, I, I was on the tail end of the Mad Men guys, like in the late 60s, late mid 70s. Those were my, those were my bosses when I started in their 60s. So when I started, it was those guys that were iconically coming in in like the late 50s and the 60s and creating like Tony the Tiger and stuff like that. So there was a bunch of guys around like that. I did not know. I thought I wanted to be a doctor. God knows why. I have a brother and sister and my brother was an artist and my sister just liked to talk to herself and teach herself school. So she, they both became doctors and I became an artist. Okay. Yeah. Uh, they're they're big. My brother's a huge overachiever. He ended up running the Mayo Clinic and did a whole bunch oh, of stuff. Wow. Yeah, I mean, don't tell him. He knows it. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, good guy. And uh, my sister's just in Houston. And then I went to a small Catholic school in Cincinnati. We were all an Aggie family. And um, to my dad's, my father's dismay, I was going to be in the Corps of Cadets, just like my brother and my grandfather and everybody else. So. When the year I graduated in 1977 from high school, that's when AM had an explosion in students. So they really dialed up the credentials to get in. And I was not a student. So <laughs> that's a nice way to put it. And um, so I had to go during that summer to try to get into school at AM. And then I ended up enjoying the Dixie Chicken a little bit too much that summer. And I a and well, I'm really bearing my soul here. <laughs> <laughs> I 
so I didn't get in, so I went to a private Catholic school in Cincinnati, Ohio. <laughs> so they just shipped me away. And, uh, so they said, let the Jesuits have his hand. <laughs> and so then I thought I was going to be a lawyer because I was just like, okay, everybody in my family, my dad's an oil business, brother and sister doctors, I better be a lawyer. And uh, I was in my junior year and I'd taken the LSATs and I actually did good. Uh, well, and I <laughs> uh, was sitting in a library studying and I always liked to draw and I was doodling. I said, I don't want to be a lawyer. I want to be an artist. So I called my dad up and told him I wasn't going to be a lawyer. He at the time was working with Boone with Mesa Petroleum. And uh, so the next day he had taken the corporate jet and was standing in my dorm room. And he's like, you've lost your mind. You're not going to be an artist. Because my dad was just like, place, oil guy, conservative, didn't understand any of the arts, didn't care about any of the arts. <laughs> and so um, anyway, that's how it dovetailed into it. And I eventually, I'm leapfrogging ahead here. I'm just going to save you some. Uh, uh, I eventually I left Cincinnati, I left Cincinnati at Xavier my junior year because they didn't have an art program so I ended up I had all these philosophy and theology hours that would have put me back to like my freshman year had I left and I was like I don't want to again so I went to University of St. Thomas in Houston Texas and because they had an art program and my whole senior year was nothing but art cram and art I had 24 hours of art just to get my degree and it was and uh, um, so I graduated with a degree in fine art and then I didn't know what the hell I was gonna do with it. And um, I was at the bookstore one day and I saw a book on, it stuck off the shelf, like how to put a portfolio together to get into the advertising. And I was like, well, that, that could be good. So I picked up the book and I went home and read, read it and it told you step-by-step step how to build a portfolio. So if you're on the creative side in advertising, you have to have this thing called a portfolio that walks around and says, this is how I think. This is my creativity. And then they go, you seem good. I'll hire you, that kind of thing. So we're talking about like 1981. And I uh, bought this book. And then it said how to put a portfolio together. Go to the grocery store, pick some products off the shelf, some ad campaigns for them. So I remember back then I picked a, a dog food and I, I don't know, just some stupid stuff. And I made a portfolio and then I flew to New York because I was in Houston. So Houston wasn't like the mecca of everything. So I flew to New York and uh, walked down Madison Avenue and I went on six interviews and the first five, I didn't get hired. Uh, and then the sixth one, the guy comes out and he's like, yeah, I'm going to hire you. And it was McCann Erickson, who I spent most of my time with. I've worked in five different global offices in McCann, but I've also worked, at, I always worked at those larger New York based agencies that have offices all around the world and stuff. And I did that because someone told me early on, work at a big you get more diversity of clients and you get judged as a creative person by how many clients you have in your portfolio. So if someone says, well, I don't know if we want to hire you at Acme ABC. Do you have any orange juice experience? And it's like, I've got four orange juices I've worked on. <laughs> so that's how jobs and you, your value is supposed to go up. That's how I got into it. <laughs> Thanks for coming. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so during your time in New York, mm -hmm. tell us about your, your, your highs and well, lows, what'd you learn? My first year, my salary was $9,500 a year wow. in New York City. So you would live with 10 people in a small <laughs> apartment and you had no money for food. And the reason I'm working for a big agency is that 
there were always big meetings going on there with big clients, so which means they cater food in. So we were just like scavengers. There was always food. So we would eat, you know, breakfast, lunch, and dinner on the agency, but that meant you had to all the time. So I literally would go to work at seven in the morning. I'd leave at midnight and then I'd go sleep for a few hours and come back. And sometimes like one time I got a sofa, so I started sleeping at work, you know, but um, they had a gym on the first floor. So I went out to the shower, but it was pretty tough. I mean, it was really, really hard. But um, one interesting story is when I first started, they had what's called the bullpen. So I didn't just start off making ads. Back then, obviously there weren't computers. Um, a lot of people, if you've been to uh, an art studio or something, they have these big drafting tables with those lights with magnifying glasses on them and stuff like that. There's a reason for those. So I, I kind of lied myself into the first job, just you know. I'm not a liar, but I did back then. Especially when I'm like a fit, I had to get a job. So the guy says, have you ever done mechanicals before? Well, mechanicals, were these physical boards that when you'd make an ad, you would set the type for it and you'd have to paste it up with where the picture went and do all that mechanical. And then that would go off to the printers to have everything done. So if there was photography, that would go and they'd do plates for the photographer. It's, it's very complicated. Um, but you have to be a craftsman and learn that. I didn't know that. I didn't know how to do any of that stuff. So uh, the guy said, you, can you do mechanicals? I said, I can do them while I sleep. You know, good enough for me, you're hired. So uh, I knew that in a new job, your first few days is kind of like a grace period where you don't really have to work. You get to know everybody. Hey, so you're the new kind of thing. So I was literally in a bullpen with boards and just 50 people around me. And there's this older guy next to me. I mean, a big long beard and he'd been there forever. And he kept a bottle in his drawer. He drank during the day. And um, it was a whole different world back then. <laughs> People did drink at the agency and walk around with cocktails like a madman. They actually did. Wow. So um, by four o'clock, everybody was smashed. Uh, and then really illicit things started happening at the agency. Quite entertaining. But uh, so he saw me with my T-square trying to figure it out. And he's like, you don't know what the hell you're doing, dude. And I was like, no, I, I really don't. So he just basically took me under his wing and told me the, he gave me 35 years of his of how to be in the ad agency and be successful according to you know jimmy walker and him and uh and so it was really kind of i mean he was very profound and i i would give him the credit for my success in advertising he literally laid out the pathway for how to go all the way to the top he didn't want to go to the top obviously but he said if you've got aspirations and you really want to eventually run this agency this is what you need to do and i mean he's dead long on, but that guy gave me all the, the roadmap that I needed. Um, so yeah, that, that's how I got started doing that. And then I did that for like six months. And then, then it's opportunistic. Like there was a guy in the mailroom that had a master's degree in English and you just did anything to get a job. Well, he got a job in the mailroom and he wanted to be a copywriter, but they're like, yeah, kid, get in the mailroom. We'll give you a chance someday. Well, he was working on Abercrombie and Fitch. And that's back when Abercrombie was actually a sporting goods store. A lot of you may not know that, but it was actually a sporting goods store. So he, he um, so, somebody got um, sick and there was a campaign that was due and I heard about it and I said, hey, me and Bob in the mailroom, we'll take that job and do it. And they're like, what? And it's like, well, let us give a shot at it. So I went and got him out of the mailroom and we worked at night for a couple of nights and we ended up, our campaign got selected by Abercrombie when it, when in, uh, there's a 
pretty big annual called the Communication Arts Awards. It's just back then was the deal, right? And uh, the very first thing we did got into CA and that agency hadn't had anything in CA in like five years. So they're like, okay, you guys are a team now. That's how we got elevated out. It was just, it's like anything else in life. It's just opportunity and being in the right place at the right time. But then you have to seize on the moment. You have to really put your money where your mouth is, you know? Yeah. So how did you then, from New York, what happened next? Well, as, again, as a creative person, you're judged by the, not only the quality of the work, but the quantity, the brands you're working on. So you're kind of like a migrant worker. So you agency until you suck all the brands out of it that you could possibly work on. And then you go to the next agency and suck that. And, and typically you'll go from that agency. Like I started off as a junior art director and then I became an art director. Then I became a senior art director. Then I became a social director, then a creative director, then executive creative director is the top job. So that was the ladder that I had to follow. And with each one of those steps, um, there's just more stuff added to your daily responsibilities. Mm -hmm. You know, as you get to creative director, your teams of people. So it's less about you. It's more about making your team better. Uh, so it really trained you on leadership. And I was a Boy Scout, so I was really a nerd and into that. So I had leadership kind of wants and desires. So I like that stuff. And then the other, um, so I, I agency bounce. I've worked in you know, Chicago, LA, San Francisco, St. Louis. I know St. Louis always people go St. Louis, but the agency that's there was DMBNB and they did all Swanson and Budweiser. I used to work on that. And, you know, it's funny after so many years, you forget how many brands you've worked on and then you see something that will trigger a memory and you're like, oh yeah, I used to do that stuff. You know, it's, like, <laughs> it's really bizarre. I mean, I, I, I think one time I calculated my thing I'd done over 1500 commercials in my career and and not even just versions of commercials just commercials and um oh there was this really cool thing when I was in New York it was the very first tv commercial and it was for again pre cell phones it was when pagers were all the rage Motorola pagers uh, <laughs> any of you guys remember those things they had them in like day glow colors like pink and blue and stuff like that I did a really cool ad for Rolling Stone but uh, I was doing this TV commercial for uh, Motorola. So yeah, I'm sure you've been in New York, right where the public library there is 45th and then there's um, Lexington and then there's um, Park. It's a pretty busy area, right? So we had scheduled the commercial to be shot on a Friday afternoon, stupid. And you have to pay the city to shut down that block for like a half a day. So you can imagine how much that costs. It's like a $3 million commercial back in 83 or something like that. Uh, and it had a cast of hundreds. So there was, you know, it wasn't just New Yorkers passing. We had horse police all around it to keep the real people out of the fable. And you got to understand how hard that was. Because New Yorkers are like, I'm not waiting for this crap. And they just walk right through the scene. It's like, uh, like we had a fake hot dog vendor. And we had kept having people come trying to buy hot dogs. From it's like, holy shit, man. So, uh, so we had this big time director. I was like 25 years old and there were multiple cameras from different angles and stuff, these big Panavisions. And I'm sitting next to the director and we have these little views we're looking at to make sure it's all framed up right and all that. And he's like, camera one, ready, camera two, ready. They're going all around on the megaphones. And right before he says action, he turns and he says, David, like that. And I was sitting and he goes, David, I like that. And he goes, is this kind of what you were looking for? And I was kind of like, 
I guess, you know, action, you know, and I was like, I mean, that's when I really had to pinch myself. I was like, I, this is stuff I think of in the shower and now there's been a $3 million making it. It's a bizarro world. I mean, I was like, I would, I would have to let me have that job. I mean, cause I mean, if you're an artist, it's all about producing something that you really like and you're proud of, but then having other people appreciate it and like it. And, and you know, this is so sad that I'm making commentary about how people I hate it, but uh, and I know you probably do too, but back then there were iconic type things. I worked on Little Caesars, you know, the ones you used to laugh about, the, the funny ones. Um, I've done a lot of really good stuff in the past that it's just not the same anymore. You know, campaigns, you used to have a campaign like um, Bud Light. I worked on the stuff that says, you know, give me a light and then put a lamp out in front. No, a Bud Light in it. That went on for 20 years. I mean, that, that's how you were measured how good your idea was long it could sustain itself and stays fresh now it's just one fart joke after the next and they're stupid i mean and it's just it's real disappointing to be like me because I, I i my friend bob he's still my he's actually my marketing we've been together since that time in the mailroom uh we can't watch tv like other people watch it and it's it's a sin because we know what the casting session was probably like we know what that actor's personality is probably like he's probably over there trying to hit on the girl after when they're taking we know how stupid the whole production thing is. It's just a disgusting process. It's like Hollywood, except it's a 30-second movie instead of a two-hour movie. You work with the exact same people. I've worked with Jerry Bruckheimer. I've worked with all those who are big directors now, but they start off as commercial directors. So, you know, I've been in it long enough now where a lot of my friends, you know, a good guy that I knew early, early on, he was what's called a PA, a production assistant. And he's the guy that goes and gets you when you're on the set somewhere and you know get me a stick of gum you know presley go get me a stick of gum he'd run off and find it you know well he ended up being a cinematographer and uh shot um what's the tom hanks movie where he's on the island castaway. Oh, yeah, castaway he's done just tons of feature films uh and this is a guy that was going to get sticks of gum so it's really fun to know people where you see them grow from that all the way up and it's a very tight-knit community because there are some benefits getting older because then when you want stuff it's pretty easy like at one point um i worked on visa we were that's back when they were doing the you know you better bring your visa card because they don't accept american express remember those commercials a long time ago and they'd show all these famous places but we were still downs for the Kentucky derby and it was going to be some multi-million dollar shoot and i was just like this is a giant waste of money i said let me just go get my camera guy um and and one assistant drag a Panavision around and we'll just shoot it all. Just give me access to everything. So we literally just, it was three people that shot all those Visa commercials. I mean, that's how we did it. And it saved them millions of dollars doing that. And it was, I, I, obviously I can keep talking forever. I'll tell you this funny story about that shoot because it just made me think of something. So my wife and I couldn't have children. And so uh, we were adopting and we adopted from Edna Gladney in Fort Worth. And so we had put in, we were waiting for someone to accept us and, and someone had looked at us and um, the day of the Kentucky Derby, the way we shot it, it, if you've ever noticed that the Derby, I mean, there's a gazillion people there, right? But on the finishing pole, right underneath it, all photographers from around the world, whether it's Sports Illustrated, whether they put their cameras and they stick them into the ground and they're on timers and remote. So when the horses come, they get the two twin spires and the horses coming by a force perspective and they, you know, that kind of stuff. And there's hundreds 
depression around the world there because those those horses are so spookable i mean just just crazy weird horses but anyway uh we had convinced the the uh ceo of churchill downs that the best way for us to get the shot was just to bury a pan in the ground right there but with us running it we were going to be laying there in the ground in the ground so right at the finishing pole we dug kind of a semi-grave you know maybe three feet deep and robert my friend the gun guy and me were laying there with just the lens sticking out and they put a fake thing of grass over us so we're buried underneath that right right at the finishing pole and everything was kind of muffled and stuff and they start you know down there so you know you hear the bell go off and the horse is coming and we literally could feel the ground just just rumbling you know it's, it's getting loud it's just coming towards you like that you know it's, it was the coolest thing I, like i said i've seen the race like no one's seen the race before right and brown was just like shaking and um so they as they come around like that then they got on the backstretch obviously we were like well, i was like oh, that's the coolest shit you've ever seen i'm like oh my god this is amazing well my cell phone went off my little big gigantic nextel phone was off and i'm like yeah, hello and it was my wife and she was we got a baby <laughs> And I'm like, you're kidding, we got a baby. And Robert was, is that pregnant? I said, yeah, we got a baby. And, uh, and so we were like losing track all excited about the baby. We're now coming back around. But that was my, that's why that's I tell my son now. I said, how I found out about you was quite amazing. You know, it was a race. And, um, and then we took, when he got old enough, we took him back to Churchill Downs and took pictures of him there at the and all that stuff. But I mean, the, the career offered a lot of really cool opportunities like that. It's not the same anymore. It's it just not. They don't. Everything's done on computers and green screen, and they're just it's just not the same. So, how did you transition from working for those large agencies into doing your own thing? Okay, I'll make this short. I'm not giving you any question time. No, you're fine. No, no, is, is this good? We're this good? is good. We're fine. We're, we're not learning good. anything. But we're gonna. Yes, we are. Come on. Okay. Um. I got a couple of funny stories too. I got, I could tell you a ton of stories, but anyway, uh, so as I rose up and became executive creative director, senior VP, all those stupid titles and stuff, uh, there's three holding companies that own basically all the big agencies in the world. And the one that I was owned by was called Interpublic and Interpublic owns probably 300 agencies around the world. McCann being one of them. I've worked for Ogilvy and DMV and the other, agencies. I spent most of my time at McCann. And, uh, so as I got to the top, you know, most of my peers in my position, I was, how old was I then? Like 35. So, I mean, I rose up pretty quick. Um, they were all like 50 to 55, my peers. So I was kind of like this, this guy, like this overachiever, do-gooder, goody two-shoes. That's how they looked at me. But I, I wasn't, I was just playing the system. I couldn't believe how easy it was to get there if you just played the game like that drunk Right. So, I mean, I wasn't special, trust me. I was just, I just played the game, right? And uh, so I get up there and then computers were on everybody's desk. So we're talking 1990, no, no, it was 88, 88 was when they put computers on your desk. And I just saw the future. I just said, you know, our business model has never been changed in a million years because if you want an you have to have X amount of dollars from being look at it, right? So most people, most small businesses like yourselves, you can't enjoy the benefits of big agency thinking because you just can't afford it. And I think 
all we do is pass around the Fortune 5,000 companies. That's all we do. Who's got Burger King this year? You know, and nothing's reinvented. And I kept looking at it going, if we use computers and technology in this internet thing, they didn't call it the cloud then. I was just like, they're internet sphere or whatever. Um, if we could use that, we could build efficiencies where we can take and put people where people are important. And then where there are processes, known processes to execute stuff, we let technology do that put them together in the cloud and then people could work remotely vendors who touch things like the guys making the ads or the jingle people there's no need for them to do it this archaic old way we can automate all this stuff so started working at night putting together sort of a, a senior thesis on how to do that you know and i'm not a computer guy and uh, i took it all those madmen drunks you know and they're like you know how mr do-gooder is coming in with a big idea so showed it to them and they're just like, that's a really great idea. Your generation should do that. We're exit stage left now, right? So I had a lot of weird things happen at that time. I had, my dad died suddenly, I got a divorce uh, and it was just a tough year. And I, and I got to the point where my thing was pitching business. I was so far removed from the creative process, which I really love. I was the guy they would send out do business and win it or talk a client off the, off the ledge from firing us. That was my job. Farmer's the face guy. Get them out there, get them to like us and give them $600 million, right? So I was on a plane. I'm not even exaggerating four times a week, just places just to either get business or keep business. And it was, there was no joy in it. And then all that stuff happened and I had this thing in my head. So before I jumped out of the frying pan in the fire, I took my idea productized it. I put it into a box. So back then, if you wanted software, you had to go to Staples and you got something that you stuck into your computer. Remember, right? It was software, you know? And uh, so the only product back then that did call itself sort of ad agency was a product by Microsoft called Publisher, which is still around today. The Publisher was a joke. So I started doing my research and found out that it made about $250 million a year for them, Publisher. And I I can kill this stupid software with it. I'm gonna call mine ad agency, right? So I spent a bunch of money and I had a, a demo put together. I literally had this really cool movie and all this stuff put together. And I sent it to Bill. I thought, what the hell? I'll send this guy a package. So I remember going down on Lexington Avenue and I went to the FedEx office there and I had a brown box and sent it to Bill Gates. And he probably thought it was a bomb. Someone probably thought, you know. <laughs> so that was just like, yeah, it looks like a bomb. <laughs> But on, on the box, on the, it's really cool how I did it. On the outside, it said, what do you offer the man as everything? You open up, it says something doesn't happen. And then I kind of had an overview. I was just trying to get a meeting. So two days later, I get a call from the president of acquisition Microsoft. And he said, we got your box. We want to talk to you. We want you to come out here. I was like, oh my goodness, I think this actually might work. <laughs> so I uh, called my, one of my cousins who is a managing partner of a law firm. I said, go to Seattle with me and protect me. So we created this shell of a company called Advent Software and told them that's what it was. And we went into the camp campus of uh, Microsoft there and they had one of those little signs you in to welcome people. It said, welcome Advent Software. So it was just a totally surreal thing. I'm just going, this is the most bizarre story. And I went in and it was a room about as big as this and, about, and there were about as many people as you. And it was all the brand managers from every section of Microsoft was in 
because apparently I scratched a sore spot on them. They were like, oh, okay. Because I kind of was putting down a lot of different products that they had in a nice way. Um, <laughs> like, why would you do that? That's stupid, you know? But um, so I didn't know how to it. I had a wall like this, so I, but I knew how to make things pretty. I knew how to do with shiny 11 by 17 pretty things. So I just made a sort of like a, a, a website tree homepage then you click this it goes to here and to here and here it's just like this tree I just kept sticking things on the wall and talking about them as I did them and they told me I had an hour there and I was there four hours so they were definitely intrigued uh, not the publisher lady but everybody else and uh long part of that was after I finished they said great presentation we'll get back to you and I thought that'll never happen and they offered me all right, this is where you know I'm stupid. This is it. This is the part where I reveal how stupid I am. <laughs> they, they offered me $2 million in Microsoft and I declined it. Oh. <laughs> yeah, same side I had, my, my ex-wife had too. <laughs> <laughs> now you're figuring it out, okay. But I just felt like I was on this mission. I was like, I'm gonna take down the advertising industry and redevelop it. That's gonna be my mission which harkens back to this very funny fact. When I got my first job that I told you about, that I lied about, the executive creative director ran into me a hall one day and I was wearing socks. Okay, it was the 80s. I was wearing Argyle socks. And he was this really, his name was Jesse Caesar and he came up with, uh, put a tiger in your tank for Exxon. Yeah. So um, he sees me and he goes, you're that new guy or whatever. He was coming to my office for a minute. So he goes in and starts with me and, and he goes, why, do you, why, did, why did you want to work here? Was it for the money? Was it for just to see your work published everywhere, all this kind of stuff? And I knew this was a pretty big question. So I was like, I'm not gonna give him some flip answer. I gotta think of something really. And it just came to my head. I said, I'm not sure why I got into advertising, but I think I'm gonna leave it differently than when I found it. And he goes, what the hell does that mean? I said, I, I don't know. He goes, well, it sounds pretty profound. That's a good answer. Funny is it's kind of coming true now because my whole goal of leaving it was to change it. It's not gonna change the product. It's not gonna change the end result of the efficacy of advertising. It's just gonna change how it's done to be more inclusive. But businesses like you could do it. So that's how I got to where I left. And then when I went to, I'm jumping ahead of your question. No, 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 you So ahead. I went to, um, I quit my job. I spent a half a million dollars of my money. I put together uh, an executive, uh, business plan. I did it all right. It costs a lot of money. Um, but that was back in 2000 when people had like ballpointpen.com and they get $50 million for it. It's stupid. Stuff. And then the dot bomb happened about the time that I entered the field, you know, perfect timing as usual. And uh, so I came back to Texas, my roots, and my dad had passed and I knew he worked with Boone and he's this visionary guy. So I thought, I'll just go ask Boone some questions before I take off on this journey. And he just said, just what do you got to lose? He goes, you're 40 years old. What the hell? Go, if it doesn't work after a year, go get a job. Like, okay, that's pretty simple. And um, so I had another private group in Dallas that I presented to that put a half a million dollars in. And then when Boone saw it, to the day he died, he didn't know what I did, just so you know. So, but he saw these other people put money on it. And he's like, on top of that. You know, he's just a poker player. So he's betting on a horse, you know, a jockey or whatever you want to say. And um, so we officed with him for 16 years. And it was, he was my mentor. Um, we got extremely close. Um, he kind of 
told my dad, which was really nice of him to do. We ended up putting $30 million into that company and it wasn't the one I'm talking about. So back in 2001, when we founded it, would any of you put your credit card online? Hell no, you wouldn't have done it. Well, that was kind of where this all was. I had an idea for subscription-based business back then. And everyone's like, we're not doing that. So when we launched a company, want to talk about timing? We launched on September 11th, the September 11th. Wow. And my developers were in New York. So that was a really frustrating day um, beyond the obvious. So uh, when we launched it, we realized that this is, we drove millions of people to the website, but no one was buying because they wouldn't do it. And so I went into Boone and the board and I just said, we're going to have to do something else and buy time and tread water until the business environment changes. He goes, I do that. I said, I don't know. He goes, but can you make us some money? And so there was this other issue that I knew that technology could help with franchise businesses, really large ones. So we were the very first brand management online system. You've heard of software as a, that's like Salesforce. We were in the brand management space for that. So we had clients like Wendy's and McDonald's and Chevron and Sears. Then they would license our, our platform for a million dollars a year. And then all their people could get on it and download things and trade all that. So we were one of the first platforms for that. So we did that for 15 years uh, and it made a lot of money for Boone. And then um, he got divorced from his fifth wife. And uh, when he got divorced, he got kicked out of the house. He went to Jay Rosser's house, who was his PR guy. And sadly, he got up to go to the bed bathroom one night. He was disoriented. Now, now Boone's like, 88, but he was really fit. I mean, smart, fit, all that kind of stuff. And he tripped and fell and smashed up oh. really, really bad. And that started his decline where he ultimately died a couple of years later. Um, so it was a really, really tough time. And we had gotten to the point where I wanted to transition my company and change it. But by then, we, I mean, we had a board of advisors with Mark Cuban and people like that. I mean, it was a big company, right? And so, um, I, I, I would go to Boone and hang out with him because everyone kind of had to babysit at that time because he was divorced and he couldn't be alone and he had a and stuff, but he always had people around him. And uh, he said, you're ready to go do that thing, aren't you? And I said, yeah. He said, uh, how much of the company you own by now? That's like 4.8%. That's all I own. And he goes, you're not going to make much money. 8%. I said, no. And he goes, I've made everything I want out of it. I want you to go do your dream. I'm going to give your company back in fall. So he just gave me my company and it was just amazing. And so uh, then he died six months later. And then it took me like a year to unwind that old company because we had partners in IBM and Hewlett Packard. I mean, major companies involved in it. So it took about a year to unwind it. And that's when I met you. Because <laughs> Ad Giants is the small uh, business advertising agency. You will literally get the full Megillah agency treatment for $85 a month subscription. And then all the stuff you do like websites and logos and social, we have partners on the back end for all of that. And those partners are all the ones that supply the big agencies. So it's not like Fiverr or 99designs where you have to manage it yourself. You get an account executive like me. We don't hire anybody with less than 20 years because all those guys, when you're 40 in the ad in industry and you're at that level, if your name isn't on the wall, they kick you to the curb. You make too much money. So those guys are out there going, now what am I supposed to do? I'm 40. I have kids in college. So I go to them and say, I want 
account executives for these people here. Because what everybody misses is they, they leapfrog right past it into, I need a logo, I need a website, I need this and this. And they forget the most important part, which is a strategy. Right. You don't have a marketing plan to have a strategy. Yeah. And most people don't know how to do a strategy. So I'm giving you people that have built strategies for some of the biggest brands in the world that, I mean, I'm her account executive. She came in and we did a soft launch months ago mm -hmm. and she, I emailed around and she came in and we met and she's experienced it. I mean, we, we collaborate together and I'm able to, I become more of a business partner than a marketing partner where we literally talk about business. I want to find out about your goals. You didn't just start your company just to make a buck. I mean, you had dreams. You either wanted to build it into a franchise or there's an exit plan. You want to hand it to your kids. That's where I start. I start with why did you build it? Where do you go? And then we look at who your competition is. How can we stomp them out and make you the preeminent person in your, in your area? And it's reverse engineering. And I just build a strategy to get you to your goal. You tell me where you want to end up and what's going to get you there. I hate to tell you. I mean... There's three things that small businesses outsource, taxes, bookkeeping, and marketing. Everything else you control. Well, the taxes and bookkeeping, that's pretty straightforward. You're dealing with numbers and stuff. When you get into marketing, that's the elusive kind of weird part. It's like, well, it's subjective. I may think that's a great Lipton logo, but you may think it sucks, right? But what you need is an objective person that's seen a lot of this stuff. They could say, that's gonna actually win in the long because of blah, 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 blah. I mean, when we think of ideas, they're not just because, oh, wouldn't that be cool? They're purposeful ideas. There's always a reason behind the idea. And if you're working with someone right now, you should challenge them to say, why is that right for me? Why do you do that? How are you going to prove to me that works? That's always been the gray part of advertising. No accountability. And this is where I became a heretic at the agency world, too, because part of my thing of changing was, at the end, I said, there's no loyalty of Coca-Cola's of the world anymore. They're going to go with the cheapest buckets, right? Why don't we base our pricing on performance? That's a crazy idea, huh? Instead of just saying, give me $600 million a year, what if we said we can make $1.2 billion a year if we tie it to their success? If we say this new campaign is going to generate this much new revenue for you, and if we hit that benchmark, you're going to give us X amount. Every client would line up for that in their game. And I, and I built Agile so we have skin in your game. If my people are not moving your numbers and getting you more customers and you're not making more money, then you go away and that's bad for you and that's bad for us. I have, have to perform for you month in and month out to move your needle or, or get rid of us or get a new guy, right? And that, that, that's the part. I mean, it, marketing has just become a four-letter word and, and, and it does rank just so you know the industries, it's lower than a used car salesman. The trust factor, it's awful. And it's, it's, there's lots of great people in marketing, lots and lots and lots and lots. And, and, but there's enough of them out there that are shysters that ruin it for everybody else so that people get tainted because someone screwed you over. And then you're like, oh, great, you're just another marketing guy. There is a difference. There is a difference. And I can tell you, it's like trying to swim up upstream um, to get people to trust average. Um, but so what we're doing as a strategy is we're going through chambers because we know that the chamber members like you are more sophisticated business people. We're not looking for someone that's sitting at a kitchen table that says, you know, oh, this could 
bottle cap, we should go on Shark Tank. You know, I'm not looking for that guy. Sometimes that's great. Some, you know, we'll listen to him. But most times we find out it really comes down to the person. It's not the idea. It's the person. It's each one of you. How committed to you are, are you to your success? You wouldn't believe how many customers we get that we show them exactly what they need to do to be successful. Then we show them a couple of things that are successful. And then you can't find them for months on the phone. Where are you? Where are you? Where are you? I mean, don't tell me next time you care because you don't. You don't. I had a guy when she came in about the time Lori came in, get this. He's in Houston, Texas, in Meyerland, Texas. He owns a 50-year-old gas station, okay? But he's one of those few outliers that still has a service bay you can go to where it's like that old mechanic that you know, take you down to Jerry at the corner or whatever. This is that guy. He golfed with one of my friends. So my friend was selling, he's trying to say, John said. So Rick White's his name. Rick White comes in and he's skeptical as all get out, as any one of you would be. I'm a gas station. I know my customers. And I said, well, then why do you need even talking to me? Well, I've been here 50 years and they're all dying. And the new cars and stuff don't need work anymore. And he goes, but the kids don't know. I can change their tires. I can align things. I mean, it's, it's, then after you work on the computer in the car, they're still changed the oil and all that kind of stuff. He goes, but I, they don't know where I live. Exactly. Whatever. I said, this is real easy. I said, you need some geofencing around your area, some stronger SEO, and you need a website where they actually can do something with you. It's not a brochure. It's something they can do with you. They can book time with you. They can ask you questions like, should I come in this week? You know, and you answer it. I said, but this is on you, Rick. I said, if you want to step up, get more customers, you're going to have to do something. I know you're 60 years old and you're tired. Do you want this bad enough? Because I'll get you customers. He said, he's like, oh yeah. Well, then three months later, I'm still trying to get phone right and it was to launch his new website he had paid for it and everything i just could i said like i need GoDaddy so i can log in and point it to it and all that stuff i finally get him to do it a month later he calls said, can you turn the website off i have more i can handle <laughs> i'm not even exaggerating it, it it wasn't a hard one to fix i said you just need to be positioned as this that old guy at the corner that knows everything about cars and so he had this really crappy logo so we did this like 1950s inspired, you know, mechanic kind of thing. And we sold them as Rick's the guy. Everyone has a guy for your car. So it's like, Rick's my guy. That was the line, Rick's my guy. And next thing you know, Rick's everybody's guy. So it's hard if you let someone work a strategy out for you. But it starts with understanding what Rick wanted. And each one of you have your own goals and they're different. And some are challenging and can't be done. Or they're going to be really expensive to do. We'll tell you that. No. Okay, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna. All right, I'm sorry. That's right. I'm gonna cut you, and <clears throat> we're gonna, we're gonna get off this. And I want everyone now to have an opportunity to ask you questions. So. You bring sleeping bags. I mean. I, I know. So I'm gonna go this off and uh, open it up. So. Yeah.